close by a mile. And I don't come up with much humor in the emotional dynamics of my reluctant awakening. But I'll just roll it, and we'll watch the dust motes float past that flickering light bouncing back from the broad and silver screen. Often it seems out of focus. My old pal, Bert, who is a retired Episcopal priest, tells me I should look up all references to eagles in the scriptures and see if I can divine, that's what he said, divine, any sense of a dream that repeats itself on the sleep-shaded screen of my mind. I don't think so. It's just a dream, I tell him, and as dreams go, pretty straightforward and not worth noticing except that it's always the same, always exactly the same. Let's say the scene is 35 miles north of Mobile, and the great bird sees far below him a wide river, wild at its banks. It is the five-mile run of the Alabama and the Tombigbee as one. His yellow eyes unblinking, the bald eagle pulls the wind through his exceptionally broad wings. The river below him divides again into the Tensaw and the Mobile, and he flies on, scanning almost thirty miles of marshes, swamps, and prime rich bottomland thick with trees bearing ten thousand names. White feathers around the eagle's fierce eyes and powerfully curved beak ruffle in the thin air, flowing around the hunter in his flight. He is a young male, just at three feet in length from his diamond-hard beak to his ten-inch-wide tail feathers. Beneath him sparkle ten thousand square miles of bays and bayous, creeks and lakes, and a river rind system that is called the Mobile Tensaw Delta. He follows his south-by-southeast course and presently sees the first signs of man, marked in asphalt and rectangles now only five hundred feet below him. He banks to the west and drops another two hundred feet in seven seconds. His wings are extended in a glide, and he pulls a lazy arc to his left. Now at a hundred feet above the river, he is flying north again. A January wind whistles across the delta and waves the marsh grasses in dark ripples shaped like the shadowy ridges cut into dunes. It is cold, and he is hungry. Both sensations quicken his senses and enliven him. His chest feels first the lift from the fresh, clean, northerly breeze teasing him as he meets it. Then a shudder courses out to his wingtip feathers, which sense each subtle shift in the air. There. Silvery shapes darting about just beneath the water's surface. He drops ten feet immediately, leveling, watching the fish below him. He is a loner, has not yet chosen his mate. This catch will be his alone. His great curved talons flex, still held tightly to his body. His heart beats faster. His golden eye has picked its prey and his entire body becomes a missile in free fall at 150 miles an hour. But then a brown blur explodes into the eagle's vision, and with an unfolding of wings and talons, the blur becomes an osprey plunging in for the kill at incredible speed. The osprey strikes a second before the eagle and steals the fish from underneath the outstretched legs and razor talons of the youngster. Without a second's pause, the regal bird of prey bends all his strength into his wings, and unencumbered by the weight of a fish, quickly overtakes the osprey and surprises his competitor with a mighty thump from his chest. Once, twice, 
and the fish falls free. The eagle abandons the scuffle and follows the fish and snatches it up at the exact instant it strikes the river. He lifts his prey beneath him and resumes his flight, returning to the top branches of a lone cypress on a well-drained hummock a quarter mile back upriver. The eagle will eat today. Bert says he's absolutely sure that I am the eagle that I dream of, that it's not a symbol from which I can draw some long exegesis of the origin and meaning of Rove McNee. If old Bert's right, then I've got it figured out that I am also this memory, these thoughts of me when I was a boy, thoughts that I fear will all too soon fly from my mind with ease. November, 1941. Thunder, low and trembling.